Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelock. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of JS Party, where every week we are throwing a party about JavaScript. I'm your MC for this show, K-Ball, and today we're going to be talking about Electron, and I'm very excited to have two members of the Electron team joining us. So first off, uh, Shelly Vore from GitHub, aka CodeBiter. Hi, Shelly. Hello. Welcome aboard. We're excited to talk with you. Also on the Electron team, uh, Jeremy Apthorpe from Slack, aka Nornagon. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, how's it going? Feeling those party beats. I know, right? That gets me pumped up every week. I'm I'm literally, like, we've talked about doing videos, and I'm literally dancing every time that, the, that music comes on. Um, you know, I've got my standard desk going, so I'm ready. Um, also on the line, we have Faras Abukadijay. Ah, I always mess up your name. Abukadijay. Faras, how's it going, man? Pretty good. All right. So before we dive into the main content, I'm always fascinated by how people get their online monikers and their nicknames. So... Can I ask each of you uh, how you arrived at yours? Uh, yeah. So honestly, I wish I had a little bit more of an exciting story for this one. But um, I made my GitHub account when I was 15. And originally, I wanted CodeBiter um, with no E on the end. And it was taken. So I threw an E on the end. And now it's sort of too late to change. But I like it. So you're like eating the code i imagine you're just like getting it out of your git clone and just kind of shoving it into your mouth (laughs) 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 um my my uh name is nornagon it um actually i also picked it when i was 15 uh it came from a computer game called creatures that had little creatures in it called norns that you would sort of take care of and and teach and stuff and that's actually um like the reason that I became a software engineer is that that game had like a modding system that you could like build new like plants and toys and things that would go in the world using like a custom scripting language that the developer of that software uh, like created. 
uh, called Chaos. And that was like my first programming language. It was Chaos, this kind of weird uh, assembly-like scripting language. Um, nice. And that kind of introduced me to a community of people and and who taught me real programming languages and over IRC. And uh, the, the name's new, unique, so I, I just kept it. Works fine. That's awesome. All right. So let's talk about Electron a little bit. Uh, and I think most folks are probably familiar with Electron if they're in the JavaScript space, but maybe not everyone. So how about we start with just what is Electron? All right. So, I mean, at a really baseline level, Electron is effectively a framework that allows you to use web technology to write uh, pseudo-native apps on desktop platforms like Windows, Mac, and Linux. So you um, have access to a JavaScript API, and you can use this to basically create applications like Slack, which obviously, or WebTorrent Desktop, or Atom, or VS Code, or any similar apps like that. Nice. So what's the development environment like? Is this basically just like developing for the web or what What do you need to do to get set up and go? Yeah, it's like very similar uh, to developing for the web. Actually, Slack's app, it, if you visit slack.com in the web browser, you get basically the same app that runs in the desktop app. Uh, when you run it in the desktop app, you can just get a, a few more features. So, uh, so most of Slack's functionality is written just the same as you would write a, a, a web app with using using TypeScript, using Webpack, that sort of thing. And are you actually using the exact same code base, or is it two forks, or how does that work? So, uh, I'm not the most up to date person on how the Slack app works. I mostly work on on the Electron side of things, rather than the Slack side of things. But my understanding of how uh, the Slack app works is that uh, it actually loads Slack.com inside of the the desktop app. So it boots up Electron and then it loads from the web, loads the code from the web. And there's a little bit of uh, kind of shim code that exposes the desktop specific functionality that the web app can call out into. Um, but it's actually loading the web app uh, inside of that from the internet. And that one of the nice things that we get from that is that. Uh, we can update the functionality of the app without shipping you a new executable. That's pretty cool. So uh, is that an, an explicit approach for Electron? Does that, and can you update the the code that's accessing Electron APIs as well? Or is it just the web piece of that that's getting loaded? Yeah, so the uh, the desktop part of that injects some fun- like some hooks that the web app can can call and if they're there, then the web app can use them. And if they're not, that means it's being loaded in a browser. And, and so it knows whether like which environment it's in. Um, and so, yeah, that's like a, a specific design goal uh, of the way that Slack is architected. That's, I think, pretty different to how Atom works. Like when you download Atom, you get all of the code that runs Atom is sitting there on your hard disk. So there's a variety of different approaches and ways that people build it. But uh, but whichever way you do it, you still have access to all of the dev tools that you're used to. So like TypeScript and uh, the Chrome dev tools, uh, you can just open them straight inside of your Electron app and set a breakpoint or, you know, edit some CSS, that sort of thing. It's It's very similar. In fact, it is Chrome under the hood. That's pretty cool. So is there any electron specific tooling that we, you know, that you use when you get in there or is it all just, you know, your standard, you know, everything is, is web technologies. You're using node, you're using Webpack, you're just going. I'm going to kick that one to Shelly since I think she has some more experience with that. Um, I would say yes, essentially. I mean, people have built out a lot of like little tools that 
um, improve electron in like specific categories or like allow for um, easier development for, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a simpler example for like logging or something similar. But um, generally, yeah, like generally you treat it primarily just like developing web technologies, except that you're thinking more in terms of desktop. So thinking about, you know, dialogues and other things you wouldn't typically think about in a web context. But um, otherwise, the, the perspective, I would say, is not altogether different. Nice. So does Electron enforce any particular application architecture? Jeremy, thoughts? I mean, I would say initially, I mean, besides like the main render differentiation. Which might be worth no. going into. So within... Right. So essentially, you can sort of think of the the dichotomy between the main process and the render process of Electron as sort of the same way you'd think about like a, a puppeteer and a marionette. So main processes spawn render processes, and then each one of the render processes is standalone. In the main process, you have access to everything. So node... And then you have, so through Node, you'd have access to the file system through their file system APIs, um, as well as everything you'd have straight through Chromium. And then render process, you can also have access to uh, all Node modules, but you typically, as a developer, you'd access those through remote. And then also you'd want to be a little bit more careful in terms of what you allow the render process to access just for, I'd say, primarily for security purposes, but yeah. Are there different security levels between the different processes? Yeah, so um, so the main process uh, has access to everything. It runs just like any other process. It runs with user privilege. Um, it has Node embedded, so the JavaScript that runs there can basically do as it likes. Um, the renderer process is a little bit more restricted. Uh, there's a it's not enabled by default, but there's a sandboxed mode um, that kind of prevents the renderer from uh, doing things that it ought not be doing. In general, though, Electron is not a platform for running untrusted code. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So like I would say like in normal browsers, like since web pages run in a sandbox environment, they're not really allowed access to native resources. So we give you the ability to do that, but we definitely don't recommend that you do that for the same reason that web pages don't really have access to that. So that's kind of yeah, interesting I mean, when you're doing something like what Slack's doing, right? Oh, go ahead for us. Oh, I was just going to say like a specific example would be like, you know, building a web browser in Electron and trying to load remote uh web pages would be probably not a good idea because even with the sandbox mode turned on um, the, so the renderer process would not have access to the node APIs, but as I understand it, it's still not, not like a perfect sandbox in the sense that like, I think a, if a page was really determined, it could break out. Um, that's my understanding. So it's like, basically you shouldn't ever load code from a remote server. Uh, in in the renderer process, it should only be code. Well, at least unless it's your server and you trust it. But even then, you have to be really careful that that server's definitely only serving code that you're 100 percent sure is trusted. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, like building building a browser with Electron, and there is uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because there was a project um, that I think involved Brennan Eich called Brave, um, the Brave browser. Mm-hmm. And they they started yeah. off building on Electron because it was a super easy platform for them to get started. And they eventually forked forked Electron and changed a few things about the security model. And then uh, I think just recently they announced that they're uh, retiring their fork and they're building directly on top of the Chromium source 
uh, source code, uh, much in the same way that Opera does. So I think I think that's uh, like that as an example of like how how people have, have kind of like evolved through that, um, like gone through that set of decisions. Yeah, that might be a conversation for later, but I'm actually really curious what the sort of what the trade-offs are there, sort of like sort of why um, Electron hasn't um, maybe pulled those those changes in their fork back in and, and made the sandbox sort of more secure by default. I'm guessing there's some good reason or some some trade-off there that 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 would be interesting to know about. Yeah, absolutely. We can chat about that uh, in depth later. We there was a lot of, there was a, a Electron Developer Summit recently in Prague, and that, uh, things like that came up. So yeah, Shelley and I can both both speak to that. I mean, we could go into it now if we're excited about it. Sure. Shelly, do you have thoughts? Well, I honestly will openly admit that I've not been the most involved in the security side of things. But um, at the most recent summit, we did have some significant discussions around security in terms of how we want to improve our security by default and then the primary steps that we need to take in order to make that happen. So um, we currently are actually spinning up a little bit of a... um, project board that allows us to sort of more formally investigate how we can make electrons secure by default. Some of those things include how we're dealing with eval, how we deal with web view, and then the node integration. So there's currently a PR up to disable the um, node integration by default, for example. Mm-hmm. And then ideally, we'd also want to deal a little bit better with potentially permission handling, web contents, and some navigation. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that um, one of the sort of tensions, one of the things that uh, Brave did in their fork of Electron, which was called Muon, um, is that they entirely removed uh, node integration from the renderer process. So one of the really nice things about Electron is that you can, uh, you know, open up a HTML file, write a script tag in it and put a require, uh, like write in that script tag, like require FS and then uh, then off you go. And that's like a really simple development model. And if your app uh, is not running untrusted code, um, then that convenience is is super valuable. Uh, and so Brave made the decision since they're basically only running untrusted code uh, to entirely remove that integration in order to sort of reduce the, um, the attack surface, uh, like remove that integration uh, the, even the possibility of having node in the renderer process in their fork. And so that that was sort of like one of the things that we decided we didn't really want to bring back to Electron, or at least if if we were going to do something like that, it would be a huge change in the way that people write Electron apps. And so that there's trade-offs to be made there. And and the, the trade-off that Brave made uh, is was right for them. And I'm not sure that it's right for the Electron project at large. It reminds me a lot of the evolution that architectures in browser extensions went through and oh, interesting. Kind of uh-huh. moving towards, you know, you had the initial browser extensions from Firefox that were tended to have very high levels of privilege, um, though the programming model was pretty low level. Um, and then Chrome introduced this interesting separation where you'd have unprivileged scripts and more privileged scripts, and they'd communicate via some sort of messaging protocol. Um, so yeah, they called the, that context isolation. I think that was called or is called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Electron uh, has that also. Um, there's a the option that you can make for uh, that you can set on a on a web contents that you open that uh, you can set like context context isolation. And that way, the code that's running in the in that frame and and the code that's sort of like talking to it is running in different contexts. 
Yeah, I actually find that just in my um, use of Electron that just from a conceptual point of view, like it's really useful for, for me to try to keep all the node stuff out of the renderer and mm-hmm. use messaging uh, or use remote. Uh, uh, actually, better, actually better, better to just use messaging so that like the main process does all the node stuff and all, all that stuff is like sort of securely over on its own in its own place and i can just see mm-hmm. like all the all the things that the that the you know all the node sort of privilege type things that the that the app might might do and then i can see that um the renderer is like only basically only has the ability to ask the main process to do certain things and then you know the main process could like deny it or if it's if it's i, I like basically you know say, say that like for example my app um you know needs the ability to like read one specific file um, then I can put that specific code in a function in the main process. And then the renderer can like, just like ask the main process to read that one file versus, versus instead of giving it like full access to the FS mm-hmm. package that, that, that it could use to do anything, you know, like to write anything or to, to just run yeah. wild. Just, yeah. Yeah. I find that's absolutely. pretty useful. I think that's also just, uh, like even putting the security reasons aside, I think that's also just sort of like good code architecture to have specific responsibility in certain parts of your code and to have clear interfaces and say like, this is what, um, you know, this is what this is supposed to be doing. Even if you're not thinking about security at all, just like, uh, how does this code work? Just understanding or modifying the the code, then that sort of separation is kind of good practice, I think. You know, what would be kind of funny is I wonder if someone uh, has ever tried putting uh, like require FS in their normal website and like maybe put it in a try catch block because that <laughs> isn't going to work most of the time. And just seeing like what percentage of uh, of the page loads ha- actually happen in an environment where require FS works, you know, that would be very interesting. <laughs> someone with a popular website, uh, you know, anyone on this show with a popular website might want to try, try that out and report back. <laughs> anyway, so I, my mind always goes straight to the evil use cases. I'm, I'm sorry. We, we've not <laughs> dove, dove in so deep into this, into this security <laughs> stuff. <laughs> no, that is, that is for Ross's take, but it, it did get me thinking, you know, there was uh, six months ago or something, there was this big article going around about the ability to include malicious code in an obfuscated way into popular packages that then mm. get, you know, pulled in. Uh, and, it definitely makes me think about, you know, the definitions of trusted code. If you're using third-party packages, you have to be really, really careful. And mm-hmm. having the possibility that, you know, you're loading a website, maybe you have some third-party packages in there, maybe you're loading you know, some sort of advertising scripts or whatever. Those folks could be checking for, do I have access to the file system and doing God knows what. I think this is, um, let's say, a mistake in operating system design that happened in the seventies that we're still paying for. I I think that, uh, there has been some good progress on that front in like the models that iOS and Android use about sort of sandboxing every app by default. And, you know, Mac, Mac OS is starting to get this with a Mac app store sandbox, but still not, not a lot of apps use that. Um, so I think, I think there's like something there to, there's like a fairly fundamental question there of like your computer, the computer is supposed to be an agent of the user and there is a a sort of inherent obfuscation of like if i you know do these things with my computer if i open this app if i click this button uh there's a sort of level of trust because i can't see the electrons that are moving around inside the the processor and you know see the packets that are going out the network i can't directly perceive what's going on so there's some like level of trust that needs to be uh, established between the operating system 
and the user. And I think it's really the operating system's kind of responsibility to provide that trust. All of which is a long way of saying uh, it's it's a complicated problem and we need complicated uh, tools to sort of attack it. And I think this lies not uh, certainly some of that responsibility lies in the hands of uh, of Electron, but it also crosses over into um, operating system like authors and publishers uh, like Apple and uh, Apple and Microsoft and Google. Uh, as well as back back up the pipeline into like uh, app authors and and how they kind of design and build their apps and, and publish their apps. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Hired. One thing people hate doing is searching for a new job. It's so painful to search through open positions on every job board under the sun. The process to find a new job is such a mess. If only there was an easier way. Well, I'm here to tell you there is. Our friends at Hired have made it so companies send you offers with salary, benefits, and even equity up front. All you have to do is answer a few questions to showcase who you are and what type of job you're looking for. They work with more than 6,000 companies from startups to large publicly traded companies and 14 major tech hubs in North America and Europe. You get to see all of your interview requests. You can accept, reject, or make changes to their offer even before you talk with anyone. And here's the kicker. It's totally free. This isn't going to cost you anything. It's not like you have to go there and spend money to get this opportunity. And if you get a job through Hired, they're even going to give you a bonus. It's normally $300, but since you're a listener of JS Party, they're going to give you $600 instead. And even if you're not looking for a job, you can refer a friend and Hired will send you a check for, get this, $1,337 when they accept the job. As you can see, Hired makes it too easy. Get started at Hired.com slash JS party okay so let's talk about why people are using electron i mean we've touched a little bit on it we're all web devs probably so you know web development is is a pro but you know why do we see people who might otherwise be doing traditional desktop applications using electron Basically, Electron, like as a framework, as with as with most frameworks, is something that, like, it's it's a tool necessarily. So, for any given thing, if you want to build it, you sort of evaluate the tools that exist and then pick whichever one seems to be the best tool for the job. So, for Electron, you can really use it to do almost anything. But to that end, there's definitely situations where Electron is an optimal choice, and then situations where Electron wouldn't be the optimal choice. So for something like WebTorrent Desktop or Slack, it's currently sort of the best choice that folks have sort of determined fits their use case. And um, I don't know, uh, Felix actually recently wrote an article, I think it was about a month and a half ago, called Defeating Electron, which sort of touches on a lot of these points, um, saying basically that Electron has trade-offs in many ways, but at the same time, it's currently sort of what the best tool for the job is. For a lot of desktop applications or just sort of why it's proliferated itself um, to the extent that it has. Yeah, I think to add to that, like you said, uh, the right tool for the job and um, what what is the job? The thing that people come to use Electron for is um, it's like I want to write an app that a user is going to use. So something that I'm going to like distribute to people who aren't me that they're going to run on their desktop machine. So Windows, Mac or Linux. And it's got to do 
something that a web app normally can't, even if that thing is only just like opening its own window or reading a file off of the file uh, file system. And I think that if you want to do uh, that, that thing, I want to distribute something to my users that does a little bit to a lot more than a web app can on a desktop machine. Uh, I think your options are sort of, uh, you can, if you wanted to do something that isn't Electron, you could say write a Qt app in C++ uh, or you could write a, you know an app with C sharp and mono uh, or uh, like GTK maybe uh, and none of those options are really very good uh, like they're they're good at what they do but uh, what they do isn't building uh, like cross-platform apps uh, in a way that's that's like easy to develop. And so I think that a lot of people have familiarity with web tech. Uh, and I think also the dev tools for web tech are really best in class. Like I think if you want to, if you're writing, say, a QT app and you're like, oh, that button's in the wrong place. Like you can't right click it and inspect the, the styles and edit it live like like you can with Electron or, or web tech or, um, you know, oh, like a user is experiencing a weird issue. Let me just tell them to open the dev tools and like, you know, run this quick bit of code uh, is like, you get a lot of kind of batteries included stuff with Electron. It's a good point. It's just better than the alternatives. Like on a lot of dimensions, it's easier to use. You already know how to use it. The dev tools are fantastic and it, and it comes with batteries included. Yeah. I think to, to a large extent, a lot of what Electron did is that it exposed the desktop to web developers and web developers is a, I mean, it's a humongous market. So it basically allowed for a bit of an easier on-ramp than I think a lot of like a native system desktop platform application does. So given the batteries included things, I think that like Electron in the sense that I mentioned best tool for the job earlier is that it's also a tool that allows for a much wider developer base to have access to creating the sorts of um, basically products that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. Yeah, I think I read something the other day that was like uh, like sixty five percent of all software engineers have written JavaScript. Like that's an astonishing it is taking number taking over the world. Uh, and like if you so if if I'm a wow. like a company or an executive at a company trying to make a decision about what how we're going to build our desktop apps and I'm looking at the options that are in front of me and I'm like okay Qt C plus plus I could hire C plus plus developers to work on this like you know somebody needs to know C plus plus in order to be able to build things with in this app uh, or you know C sharp and mono or uh, you know Windows uh, WPF Windows presentation framework. Um, the number of people in the world who already know how to use those technologies is much, much smaller uh, than if you're uh, building with JavaScript. Like a lot of people already know JavaScript and, and already know like CSS and uh, know Node and know how to use those APIs. So um, there, there's kind of like a from a perspective of somebody who's trying to hire a team. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot to be said for the available pool of, of people who can bang out some JavaScript. And this has gotten a tremendous uptake. I saw a, a survey recently or a, a blog post about a survey that on the NPM blog where across industries, more than 20% of developers reported using Electron for something like in every industry that they surveyed. 
Using Electron? Using Electron. This was JavaScript-focused, folks, because it was a survey by by Node or NPM. Mm -hmm. Uh, But across all the industries that they looked at, you know, finance, advertising, marketing, education, even government, manufacturing, 20% or more reported using Electron in at least some project. Wow, that is a brand new statistic to me. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. That's amazing. Can you link me? Oh, somebody. Yeah, I just thanks, put it Kim. in the, the Slack huh. um, channel and I'll, I'll put it in here so they can put it in the show notes. But yeah, the the uptake has been phenomenal. Um, and, you know, we, we were brainstorming some examples of big apps using it, right? Obviously, the Slack app that you're talking mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. Um, Atom, VS Code. Skype, where we're currently talking over an Electron app. So Really? I didn't know yeah. that. Skype is Electron. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Wow. Uh, Trello. Trello desktop is um, Teams. Stride. That's pretty darn impressive. Now, Electron is not without its detractors. And I think the biggest thing that I've seen is folks talking about memory usage. Do y'all want to talk about that at all? Uh, sure. I can try to take a stab into it a little bit. Um, so as memory goes, generally, yes, people's like typical complaint about Electron is that it takes up a lot of memory for what it's doing. But at the same time, I think it's sort of like I said earlier a little bit in the sense that there's like kind of a time and a place for building an application with Electron. So the trade-offs in terms of memory, so let's say Slack tends to come up a lot for this. So Slack, I think the question there is more what would the alternatives be that would be better? Like what other frameworks allow you to build something like Slack that allows you to do all the things that Slack allows you to do and is like significantly leaner. So let's say if you want to build like a tiny tray app that says hello world. Yeah. In that case, Electron may not be your best choice in the sense that you are using some significant amount of RAM with a very small amount of output. But, um, this is also, it's also pretty closely tied to Chromium in the sense that um, every major update that we've done has actually improved our memory usage pretty significantly. And I think we'll only continue to see that improve. I think that's sort of a good initial stab at it. Jeremy? Sure. I was going to, Shelly said all sorts of useful things. So I'm going to say facetious jokes instead, which is, uh, so like, do people complain? <laughs> do people complain that their city has too many buildings in it? Like, would they rather that it was all just sort of empty and like vacant lots? Why do you your RAM exists for a reason, and it's to make the apps on your computer like run uh, and run fast? And so I was talking to one of the um, I used to work on the Chrome team at Google, and uh, and so I went and talked to uh, one of the uh engineers who works there on the compositor team and i was like yeah people people are like complaining about electrons memory usage and somebody said like oh it's the compositor seems to be taking up a lot of that memory uh so i thought i'd ask you about like you know what's uh what's going on there uh and they said um like we've we've looked into reducing the the amount of memory that the compositor uses but ultimately, it ends up being a trade-off between memory usage and speed. And if we make it take less memory, which we could do, then it'll be slower and people complain about it being slow instead. Um, and so I, th- I think also the people who complain about memory usage are the people who open Activity Monitor and look at the memory number. I think if you don't open that, uh, if you don't open Activity Monitor or Top or whatever and, and look at the memory usage, 
you'll never go, you're never going to notice how much memory that app is using unless you're trying to run like 10 instances of Photoshop, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and your machine is swapping. So I think there's like, um, you, memory usage is not itself bad. Um, it has downstream effects that are bad and that's mostly like until, until you hit your memory limit of like active memory, um, you're not going to notice anything. And then as soon as you hit that limit, you hit a cliff of, of the swap. And so if you're swapping a lot, uh, sort of that's when you start to notice the, like the detrimental effects of, of like a, a lot of memory in use. I, I have a suspicion that a lot of these folks complaining are power users. Like I just opened up top. And if I look at, at our order by memory usage and I look at the top, you know, 30 processes and 10 of them are Chrome, seven of them are Slack because I have 10 Slack channels or Slack you know, things in my Slack app. And then there's a few other things, right? But that's because those are the most phenomenally useful applications, right? I have 30 Chrome tabs open. I have 10 different Slack channels that I'm plugged into, right? Like I'm, that memory is going to use because those are the things that I use. Right, exactly. And, uh, and like, I don't know, you're a power user. How much memory is in your machine? Uh, this one, this one has eight gigs. So it's actually not that massive, but cool. Yeah. I just opened like, okay. And then I think to some extent too, I think like Electron definitely does sort of shape itself around a world where ideally every computer user has a pretty significant amount of RAM. But at the same time, I think that's a world that's sort of approaching a lot faster than we necessarily think it is in the sense that even a few years ago, the default amount of RAM that came with um, computers was significantly smaller than it is now. Um, you know, there's Macs with 32 gigabytes of RAM. And I think saying that to someone, even when I was in high school, would have been somewhat fantastical. Yeah, RAM is one of those beautiful places where Moore's Law has more or less continued. Yeah, I think there's also, um, like, there's definitely a concern here because in in the, like, wealthy uh, US-centric world, um, we're kind of living in a different uh, a different universe than than a lot of the rest of the world. And so I think there's definitely something to be uh, quite reasonably concerned about there if you're uh, targeting uh, a market of users that doesn't have the the kind of like very recent, very high-powered computers that we're used to kind of assuming uh, exist um, in the sorts of environments where, where we uh, are a lot of the time. I think I think it's important to kind of think outside that box and and uh, and and make sure that we're you know, reaching the broadest set of people that we can. So for folks who are targeting that, any recommendations? I saw Faraz, you were linking to some stuff around uh, building them like mobile applications and things like that. Yeah. So I mean, another criticism that you hear with Electron apps is just uh, sort of CPU performance related um, as well. So like just sort of in the background. Um, apps just spinning the CPU, you know, doing, doing random things, uh, uh, like a, like a Chrome renderer process might, you know, just be doing some stuff in the background that like, maybe if you wrote it as a native app, it wouldn't be doing or something. I think that's the idea. Um, and then there's also, so that's one, one issue. And the other one is, and then, and then of course that affects battery life. And then the other issue is, uh, potentially is like startup time. Uh, I saw a lot of people, uh, asking about that on the, on the, um, electron issue tracker and mm-hmm. so with the web with the web torrent desktop app uh, we I, I just personally took an interest in that uh in, in improving startup performance as much as i possibly could and um 
I just had some tips for how to do that. If you're looking at making your, your Electron app startup quickly. Yeah. I'm really curious what, uh, what you found worked for you. Yeah. So, um, so I, like I initially just wrote, um, the way I figured out what was causing this startup time to be slow is I wrote a, uh, a kind of a wrapper around the require function and, Mm. uh, just timed how long every require took because every time you call require, uh, there's, well, there's, yeah. So in the naive use case of calling require, it reads, uh, it reads the file that you're requiring from the disk. And then you do all those requires synchronously, uh, like one at a time, right? Cause it's a, it's a synchronous call. And so that can, you know, mm-hmm. can take a while if you're reading like a thousand files, uh, which, you, which is definitely possible in like a, in like a decently sized, uh, you know, node with a decently sized, uh, package tree. But then there's like, I think there's a way where you can, take the whole node modules folder and bundle it up into a single, uh, file, like an ASAR file is what it's called. It's, it's like a, it's, it came from, I think it stands for like Adam archive file or something. You, you probably are familiar with this. Uh, but anyway, think, that's what, what was, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I think that might be an artifact from when Electron was called Atom shell. So it might be yes, Atom, Atom shell Atom. archive. Yeah, correct. Yes. Yes. Yep. Anyway, so if you do that, then you can basically eliminate like the, the, the hundreds or thousands of, of uh, different reads uh, on, on, the, on files, which is really valuable if your users are on a, on a computer with a spinning hard disk, because those are, mm-hmm. are going to all be random accesses to random files. And it's going to have to you know, go back and forth to different parts of the disk to read, to read all that stuff, which can make the startup time be like you know, 10 or 20 seconds I've heard. But, um, so mm-hmm. if you do the ASAR file thing, which is like literally like a one line configuration thing that fixes nice. a lot of the problems. But then the other big one was just how long it takes to actually run the code in those mm-hmm. require calls. So even if the file system is really fast, you still have to run all that JavaScript. And so then I just timed that and just found like, Oh, there's a couple of packages here, which are just like huge. And do I really need to run those right when the app starts up before the UI even mm. shows up? And it was mm. like, clearly not, it was clearly the case that certain things didn't need to show up, uh, until a mm. lot, lot later in the app. Um, so like, for example, something like, uh, uh, for web torrent desktop, we support casting the video that you're watching, uh, to a Chromecast or to an Apple TV. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's no need for that code to, for those modules to be required until a video has actually been played. Um, and so that doesn't need to block the startup of the application. And so, uh, we just put that into a little like lazy load, uh, call literally it's, I think it's like a set timeout where, we could have done it like at the time then where the video is actually loaded, but we just said like, let's just literally put it in a 10 second set timeout and we'll just wait, you know, and then start looking for a Chromecast and, and Apple TV devices like 10 seconds later. And, uh, and that by itself, like saved like half a second and you just keep doing that and, and figuring out what doesn't need to load. And it's just like a mobile app. I mean, you know, you do code splitting so that you don't have to load like a megabyte of JavaScript on a mobile device or a mobile website. Um, it's the same exact philosophy just just figure out what the minimal uh, amount of code you need to run to get that first paint of the ui to the screen is and then and just be ruthless about it you know like choose small modules you know that kind of thing i'm curious uh if you came across uh like uh i think it's called electron link and make snapshot um that are tools that uh kind of attack the problem of loading a bunch of javascript uh in a sort of slightly different way no, I haven't heard of those. Okay, cool. Um, so I haven't used them myself, so I I'm, I'm, wouldn't 
certainly wouldn't class myself as an expert on these, but I understand that the way that they work is that they will, you can kind of bundle all of your JavaScript together into one file, like the kind of similar to the ASR approach that you were talking about. Uh, but then what you do is you load it into V8 uh, ahead of time, and that kind of parses and and kind of constructs all of the internal structures that uh, V8 will need to run it at runtime. And then you can kind of snapshot that uh, all of that uh, information that V8 has constructed out of your JavaScript code, and then load that snapshot back up on on startup in your app. So you, so you're in dev, in development, you can create that snapshot and then ship that snapshot out to your users. And when they start the app, instead of having to start from the raw JavaScript files or even like the kind of packaged up ASR, um, that's, you still have to parse all that JavaScript. You can start from a snapshot, which is much more like friendly for load time. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Another tool that you can kind of like get in your arsenal. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer here at Changelog. You know how important it is to stay in the know. And our weekly newsletter helps you and thousands of other developers do exactly that. It's the developer news that matters, nothing more and nothing less. Visit changelog.com and subscribe today. So let's jump back in and talk about community. Uh, Shelly, can you talk a little bit about the Electron team and core team, community, ecosystem, all the stuff around us? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say over the course of the past year or so, there's been some pretty significant changes. Um, when I first joined the team, the core was the core group of folks working on Electron Electron was probably about five. Um, and then now I'd say it's probably about 15 folks in total. Um, it's been great in that it's allowed us to more effectively approach issues, sort of delegate work, um, work together more effectively. And then it's also important to note that about four companies have employees who work on Electron. So we all sort of function as one unified team, which allows us to attack a much wider variety of issues than we really used to be able to. And then um, think about a slightly firmer form of like the way that we sort of like structure the, where we're going and how we sort of like, like, for example, um, mini summits were mentioned. We have two mini summits a year and each one of those mini summits sort of determines the next six months of roadmap. Um, our last mini summit uh, was about 40 people and all 40 of those people are pretty active contributors in the community that are invested in electron success and who are able to sort of bring different perspectives to the table, depending on what, company they're coming from and what their electron use cases are. And because of that, um, I've definitely noticed over the course of the past, I, I say a year or so, that um, we've been able to get a much better understanding of where we are and where we want to go, just because now we have access to such a wide variety of perspectives and needs. Yeah, absolutely. You, you said there's uh, four companies who are like working on electron. I think, uh, I think you're saying that there's there's kind of four companies that have people working on Electron full-time. I think the number of companies uh, where people yes. at that company have contributed to Electron is is much, much bigger. Um, like I'm thinking about... Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I was, I was going to mention like uh, Figma and um, I'm not sure what company uh, Brenka works for, but 
that person does um does a lot of work on like vr related stuff so there's a lot of kind of like companies who are using mm-hmm. electron for something like quite specific and they uh they're like uh they have a, a, f- a few people who come and like send us prs every now and then um but uh but the four companies that are that have like people working on electron full-time are github of course uh microsoft atlassian and slack so soon to be three companies <laughs> uh well uh, uh google <laughs> recently uh launched an app that's built on electron so maybe maybe it'll go back up to four <laughs> nice and what about you know so you mentioned there's sort of some tooling and and other stuff that sprung up around electron um how large is that broader ecosystem uh just in terms of like the number of apps that are using it or i was thinking about folks who are working on electron specific uh libraries extensions tooling that type of thing maybe not in the core package but stuff that people are using with electron surprisingly a lot like i think sometimes even for me just like my day-to-day is like in the weeds enough that it's easy to sort of forget like the sheer scope that electron has and the number of people that are familiar with it and use it and and want to help us make it better every day. I know if you search our website right now, actually, we just rolled out a redesigned search function that was built yeah, by super um, nice. an awesome community contributor. Yeah. And it allows you to actually search not just all of the applications that are using Electron, but all of the um, libraries and frameworks that have sort of popped up around or like just little modules that have popped up around improving Electron on a um, like simpler scale or even just the people that have written, you know, we range there from diagnostics tools to improved, um, trying to think of some easier ones, just like, you know, improved usage of the logging functionality or to anything really. But um, all of those things are incredibly important to sort of continuing to proliferate the degree to which Electron fits people's use cases and the ways in which we can sort of um, make the the onboarding ramp to be able to use Electron uh, a lot lower. Yeah, I was going to add to that. I think that there's, um, uh, throwing back to like one of the things that we were talking about earlier about like why do people use Electron? I think one of the, definitely one of the reasons for that is the community of tools that's there. If you're building, say, a Qt app, um, then, and you want to go and, and like build auto-updating for your app, for example, so that your app will stay up to date on your users' machines. That's something that there's a package for in Electron and there's like very strong community support for, for a really big kind of pain point um, that a lot of uh, the, like every person who's serious about developing a desktop app is going to have to deal with um, keeping, keeping their apps up to date on their users' machines. Uh, and that's something that like the Electron ecosystem has fantastic support for. And there's a whole you can kind of go through the the series of like things that everyone's going to have to do. Uh, it's like debug crashes that happen on the client's machine. Um, there's there's some really fantastic support for that uh, coming from the Electron community. So I think that uh, I think that's that definitely is is perhaps beyond the like batteries included, but like batteries available. Um uh, for yeah. electron in a way that you would have to kind of build build things in a much more custom way if you were doing things with a different framework awesome maybe let's talk a little bit about kind of what is it like being on the core team being an open source maintainer uh there's there was a recent tweet from uh jeff lembeck at npm talking about just the the sort of flack that you sometimes run into like it's crazy you're building this thing that people can use for free that is uh incredibly powerful for them and yet some folks just are 
are unremittingly negative. And I know that you know open source maintainer burnout is a big issue in our community. Um, so what is that like for you, especially since you're in the the great position of being able to work on this full time paid by a company? Like how how does that work for you? I mean, uh, I, I can go first. I'm sure Shelly has thoughts on this as well. Um, I think being paid for it makes a huge difference. Uh, and I think that's a, a lot of the kind of flack that gets thrown at projects that are maintained by people doing it in their spare time or doing it as a, you know, as a, as a passion project. Um, like part of what you do when you do that is like, I'm, I'm building this thing cause I want people to, to use it and love it. Um, and it can be super demotivating, uh, to see that, you know, people can kind of really focus on the, on the negative aspects of that. Um, uh, but for me working at Slack, I'm surrounded by people who depend on the app that I enable to exist, uh, with, with the, like the work that I'm doing. So I, I'm kind of like surrounded by people who are thinking positively about that and I'm getting a salary for it, <laughs> which is like, uh, not definitely not, not too bad. To, not to be sneezed at. I think that that makes a, a, a really big difference. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was like how fun it is to work with like developers from all sorts of uh, places around the world and, and uh, different companies and different goals and things like that. But I wanted to kick it to Shelly to see if she wanted to say anything first. Yeah. I mean, my sentiments are rather similar, I would say, in the sense that it definitely helps a lot that it's easy for me to frame it as my job instead of it's something that I'm doing in my free time, because it's a little bit easier to let sort of like, you know, the flack that you get and the negative comments you get to wear you down a little more. If you feel like you're doing this just in your free time for the general benefit of the community. And I obviously still do feel like that. And I'm so excited about the impact that the work I do is able to have, but it's also easier to frame it. I think in a little bit of a healthier way with the knowledge that it is, um, you know, my job at the end of the day. Um, and then also I really love definitely probably one of my favorite parts of being able to do this is that I get to, to work in such like a cross, a cross company and a cross team collaborative way. And I got to hear all these different perspectives and all the different needs and like successes and issues that different companies have when they use the thing that I help build. Um, just because I think like that wider access perspectives allows you to grow both interpersonal and technical skills, like surprisingly fast, I've noticed just because you're sort of forced to think about all these things in a way I think you otherwise wouldn't be able to if you just didn't have access to that sort of like raw array of perspectives. I think also um, one thing that is really impressive to me about the way that the Electron community is built is that um, we're very serious about um, like our code of conduct and being inclusive. And there's I, I've been more than impressed with uh jacob does a lot of this work jacob groundwater at github uh of like kind of monitoring the issue tracker and making sure that people are being respectful and uh and like making sure that people feel included um i i've been i've been really impressed with the the kind of the way that the community is organized and and uh kind of kept inclusive and kept kept open open and uh and welcoming so I think that uh, I think Electron does uh, a fantastic job, uh, you know, not that I'm biased, um, uh, but a fantastic job of, of kind of build, building a community uh, that's that's really um, open to everyone. And 
which certainly is not to say that we we're kind of like you know mission accomplished this sort of thing is something that is not a is not like a a medal that you put on your on your coat and you say we did it uh, it's something that like we we do actively every day and every every person in the community is involved in and it's something that um that we'll continue to do and i'm uh, really happy to be a part of a community that puts such an emphasis on those uh, aspects. Yeah, I agree pretty strongly with that in the sense that I really love the things we've been able to do so far. But at the same time, I'm pretty excited to be able to keep iterating on, you know, for example, the way that we label good first issues and the way that we sort of make ourselves available to less experienced programmers who might want to contribute to an electron issue or write a feature and might not know how. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a perfect introduction to what I was going to ask, which is, if somebody is new, they either they're using Electron, but they're not really plugged into the community or they're just they're excited. and They want to know how they get involved. What are the what are the front doors? Where do you recommend people get started? So we have a uh, Slack instance uh, for maintainers that I would say is probably one of the best avenues just because it's the easiest way to reach us most directly. Through that, I've actually been able to pair in sort of an office hours format one on one with several new contributors to the community. And been able to sort of pick out issues and, you know, walk them through what the development environment looks like for Electron. And then in a couple of cases, just we've been able to to sort of pair and then to help them get a bug fix or feature out the door and get some some commits into Electron. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think um, one way that uh, as a as a, the Electron community, we can improve is making that clearer. Um, one of the things uh, that's being discussed at the moment um, certainly nothing, nothing final, but we're talking about like, how does somebody new to the project, uh, understand all of the work that's going on at the moment? Who's working on what, what are the most important priorities, um, that are like within the team? And if I want to get, like, if I, uh, want to lend a hand and say, I'm interested in, uh, keeping Chrome up to date, or I'm interested in making Electron secure by default, or, uh, you know, who's working on that? Who do I talk to? And there's no, uh, kind of like list of of who's who's doing the most work on this who's the right person to talk to if i want to know like how do i jump in and help out i think that's something that we can do better at communicating so speaking of those hot topics what's on the roadmap what are you super excited about that's coming in the next six months yeah so there's there's a pretty big range of things to be honest um i'm super excited about something that i took up recently actually um which is i started contributing more to node core and um, I, I didn't really like think about the possibility of this until until recently, because I, I typically am the one who upgrades Node within Electron. And the way that we do that is that Node um, works for us, but there's definitely like a few things we have to do to make it work more specifically for our use case. And so as a result of that, we float about 25 patches on top of Node. So one of the things that I've taken up recently is trying to see how many of those patches that I can upstream into Node and make more extensible to help um, the wider base of embedders for Node itself. Um, so I'm super excited about that. And then also super excited about being able to interact more with the Node community and learn from them and see if there's ways in which like we can bring some of the things that we've implemented in Electron into Node. Yeah, so I, I just pulled up the, um, the, the notes that we sort of wrote up from last summit. So as Shelly mentioned earlier, we have uh, kind of a, a summit uh, twice a year to kind of get a bunch of people who are working on Electron regularly together and, and uh, talk about 
um, kind of things that are top of mind and uh, what we're going to do about them and kind of like align and and also just sort of get to know each other as a team, um, which I think is a, a huge part of uh, of like the value of that is like seeing people's faces and being like, oh, you work on this thing. I saw your name on that issue. You're like, how's it going? I now I now know who you are as a person as well as a name on GitHub. Um, so, uh, but as a part of that summit, we sort of came up with the uh, like collaboratively the things that we're all uh, like collectively most concerned about or most excited about. Uh, and one of the biggest things uh, that I think uh, we had like the most conversation about um, was keeping up to date with Chrome. Uh, so. Electron 3, the beta version of Electron 3 is on Chrome version 66, which I think is already like three versions behind um, Chrome proper. And so there's a lot of stuff that we've been talking about, about how can we how can we improve our velocity on that and how can we stay um, up to date with Chrome and stay stay current, uh, is it, which is a, a tricky thing because Chrome is kind of a moving target. They're often, they don't think of their internal APIs as, stable at all so uh, and we call a lot of them and so that means like i fixed a bug the other day where um uh like chrome changed the way that they check whether spell checking is enabled on a particular field or not uh and had it default to false and we didn't implement that new method uh and so that meant spell checking was just disabled for everything uh and uh so so that's the sort of thing that kind of happens a lot um uh, you know, if we're lucky, we get a compiler compiler error. We can just go fix it. If we're unlucky, it's just sort of silently wrong. Um, uh, so that's a challenge for us. Uh, and there's a bunch of stuff that we're kind of working on to sort of improve our velocity and our correctness on that. So something that I'm working on personally is switching uh, the build system of Electron to, to the same build system as Chromium. Um, so Chromium used to use JIP and Electron uh, also currently uses JIP to build. Uh, but Chrome a couple of years ago switched to a build system that they wrote themselves called GN. Um, and so we're kind of shifting over to that, which will enable us to like uh, kind of like have to do less adaptation work. Like if something changed in Chrome, and like a build flag changed and we would have to figure out what that was and copy it over to our JIP config. Now we can just depend on the, the target inside of Chrome directly. Um, so that's that's some ongoing work, but there's also uh, things around CI and running uh, running Chrome's tests uh, as much of them as we can from our from our build of Electron upstreaming things like uh, like Shelley said, if we can upstream the patches that we need uh, inside of we have a bunch of patches to Chromium as well as patches to to Node. So if we can upstream those, that uh, will reduce the maintenance burden on us. Um, things like uh, introducing some modularity so for example uh, some of our less commonly used features are things like pdf display or printing uh, and if we could flag those off um, that means that somebody who's working on updating to a new version of chromium doesn't have to fix all of the build errors in that particular module straight away they can kind of get the base stuff working and then somebody who's an expert in one of those particular features like pdf or off-screen rendering um, can come in uh, in parallel and fix, fix the errors in, in, or, you know, whatever needs to be fixed in that particular module. So kind of using a, using a technical tool there to like introduce, uh, parallelism on a, on a people level. 
so those are some things that we're thinking about for uh uh like staying up to date with chrome the other things that we talked about uh that's that's one of the ones that i know the most about so that's kind of what i will blabber on about um but we also talked a lot about uh kind of the relationship between electron and the web platform and progressive web apps and how can we kind of build build a smooth path in between um electron and pwas um there's a bunch of people uh from the google web platform team at the summit uh which was which was fantastic really good to talk to them uh we're talking about how we do like issue management and outreach um how do we get people uh kind of more people working on electron and uh and stuff like that um uh being being secure by default there's a bunch of other stuff performance making sure we have a regular release process nice so we're getting close to time. We could keep talking for forever because there's so much good stuff here. Um, <laughs> any last notes that that y'all want to put out there before we close up? Uh, I don't think I was. Thanks for having us nothing, on. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing big comes to mind right now. Um, yeah. All thanks right. so much for having us. It's awesome to be here. So let's close up then. So this has been JS Party number 34 talking about Electron with our amazing guests, Shelly Vor and Jeremy Apthorpe. Codebiter and Nornagon, uh, as well as uh, Faras, and this is K-Ball. Uh, next week, we will be off for JS Party as the Changelog team is heading up to OzCon in Portland. Uh, but tune in in two weeks, Thursday, 10 a.m. Pacific, 12 Central, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We do this live every week, except next week. Um, and we'll catch you next time. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at Changelaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at Changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Music